And once again, if you have joined us in the midst of the service, we want to extend a warm welcome to you. It is a warm July day. A warm welcome it is on this July day. Uh, We're grateful that you're here. We hope we get the chance to actually get to know you a little bit better. You will find in the pew rack in front of you a a card that you can fill out. Please feel free to, to do so. Give us some contact information. We promise we won't step into your inbox or your voicemail too often, but we would love to just get to know you and uh, see if there are ways we could pray for you, to serve you, even share uh, more with you about the ministry here uh, at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Also, those of you who are joining us via live stream, we're grateful that you're here as well, especially if you're visiting with us. You'll note on the page that you are live streaming. There's a a form that you can fill out, a visitor form. We also would love to hear from you and find out if there are ways that we can be serving you even more faithfully in the days to come. We're glad you're here. Well, as I get older, this may seem odd, but as I get older, I, I appreciate good children's literature all the more. You actually will find some really good children's literature on the bookshelf just right up this staircase through this uh, door even this morning. In fact, a new release from a dear friend of mine uh, called The Promise is sitting right there on the bookshelf. Now, don't rush right after the service and buy them all up, but uh, there is enough for at least a few of you uh, to be able to purchase this morning a wonderful volume that teaches us about how the Old Testament, especially the shadowy images and types and figures of the Old Testament, how they point us to Christ. The name of the book is The Promise, and I commend it uh, to you. Now, an older um, children's book that I uh, grew up with, I wonder if there's anybody in here familiar with this particular book called Yellow and Pink. How many of you are familiar with Yellow and Pink? Anybody in the room? Show of hands, yes, absolutely no one. All right. So it tells you something about the unusualness of my childhood, that this was one of the books that we read uh, growing up. So Yellow and Pink, a quick story about this uh, marvelous little uh, volume, which I'm sure Amazon will be sold out of later this afternoon, as all of you go and uh, buy this book. But it's about these two little characters. You see them there? Aren't they cute? You know, yellow and, and pink. Um, they're, they're wooden little men who, as the story begins, are, are laying out on some newspaper on, on the grass. And uh, they awaken and they begin to have a conversation with each other. And they wonder how they ended up here, especially in this, this world, this world that's before them. And, and, um, and, and pink suggests that maybe somebody made them. And then yellow is like, you're such a fool. There's better ways of understanding the world. And he says, it could have been possible that we were, we were a large branch at one time. And, and we fell off of a tree and we hit a sharp rock. And you got carved in just the way you did. And I got carved in just the way I did. And then, then thousands of years went by. And, and weather and, and cold winters. And, and the wood cracked in just the right way. And that formed our mouths. And then woodpeckers came along and they to see in our eyes and our, and our ears and all of this. And we, then we were just, we were made after millions of years. And, and, and apparently that must have happened twice because you're pink and I'm yellow. And, and they had an explanation for the colors and all of that. And, and then pink is not buying any of this, you understand. But yellow is completely sold in. And then a man shows up. And he picks up pink and he looks at him and he rubs him and he says, Oh, good, it's nice and dry. And then he picks up yellow and he says, oh, look, it's nice and dry. And he puts pink and yellow underneath his arm and he's walking uh, back to his home and and yellow whispers into pink's uh, ear, who who do you think this man is? And pink says, I don't know. 
You know, a lot of people are walking through life in that way. A lot of people are walking through life in that way. They don't really know. They don't know the maker. They don't know the creator. They don't know the riddle of actually the world in which we live in. But every one of us have explanations, don't we? We have thoughts. We have ideas. We live as if the world has meaning. We live as if these things make sense in some way, shape, or form. We may have cobbled in some sense a a narrative of the world, an explanation for the way things are. And it might be closer to yellows or it might be closer to pinks. But the fact of the matter is all of us have some way in which we understand the world. I'm entitled today's message, The Truth About God and Man and the World in 12 Verses. The the truth about it all, how, how it all makes sense. This, this crazy thing that we call life with its rapture and its rupture, with its ups and with its downs, with its mysteries and with its scientific precisions that just seem to come together. How is it that this world makes sense? What are we to understand about it? Well, I believe in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, we're, we're given a telling through the parable of Jesus about how to understand who God is, who we are, and the world, and to do so in a way that will help forge within us wisdom and even direction for life. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables, little stories. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit For the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask you now as we consider this your word, as we explore it together with the presence of your spirit, we ask that you would teach us many wonderful things. 
but that as you teach us, it wouldn't simply be the kind of learning that would lodge away in our minds and make us a little bit smarter, though we do pray to be a little bit wiser and smarter by the end of our time together. Our prayer is that you would change us, and that would happen only if you were to show up and to meet with our hearts now in this word. See our neediness of you. Know every soul in this room. And to the degree needed, teach to us that which we must know. And change us. For your namesake, we ask it. Amen. Now, one of the first things to know about this text is that this is not the first time this parable has been told. Now, I don't mean in the other gospel writers this parable is being told. I meant a long time before Mark chapter 12, this parable was told. It wasn't even told by the lips of Jesus. Jesus wasn't the first teller of this particular parable, believe it or not. But it was his favorite quoted prophet. If you were to collect all of the quotes from Jesus in the Gospels about where it was he was reading in the Old Testament, you would find one prophet in particular that he quoted most often. Do you know which one it was? It was Isaiah. He is, of course, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and many of those passages are referenced. But Isaiah was clearly one of the texts of Scripture that Jesus spent much of his own time in. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 5 as he tells the parable of the, talent, of the, of the tenants, not the talents. That's another parable. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah's telling, it's in Isaiah 5. We won't go there. We won't spend time particularly in that text. But I want you to know that so much of it parallels exactly what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 12. And it helps us significantly understand the purpose of this parable. When the prophet Isaiah tells the story, he has Israel as the vineyard, which God himself has planted. God had dug out a wine press, and he had planted the choicest of vines, according to Isaiah. He had put in a watchtower. A tower so that a watchman could look for enemies or wild enemies or wild animals that might approach the vineyard. So far, it parallels almost perfectly what we read here in Mark chapter 12. It's quite clear that Jesus is borrowing from the prophet Isaiah. What's interesting is not the similarities between Isaiah 5 and Mark chapter 12, but the differences between the two. That's what's unique. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you look at Isaiah 5... It's God who comes looking for grapes. And when he comes looking for grapes, we're told in verse 2 of Isaiah 5 that the vineyard had yielded only wild grapes. Now we read that and think to ourselves, oh, these were, I thought he had planted the choicest of vines and, and, and so these must be some, some vines that kind of crept in or something like that. Well, no, actually, the word in the Hebrew literally means rotten. These are rotten grapes. These are not the kind of grapes I would have expected from the kind of vines that I had planted. And it's clear that Isaiah, in the context of his own writing, is appealing to the moral corruption and spiritual faithlessness that was true of the people of Israel in his day. That they were like wild grapes, despite the fact that God had put in all of the effort in the vineyard to bring forth the best fruit. Now notice here in Mark chapter 12, though, that the focus is not on the vines so much or on its fruit, though that's a theme. But the focus is on the wickedness of the tenants, of which Isaiah spends almost no time talking about with regards to the vine dressers. But it's very clear that Jesus is zeroing in 
borrowing Isaiah's parable, but employing it for his particular purposes. And it's clear here that the religious leaders are in view. They are the tenants here in Mark chapter 12. They're the vine dressers whom the landowner had left in charge to tend the vineyard. Uh, the vineyard, of course, is, is Israel, the people of, of Israel. They're the symbol. It's the responsibility of the religious leaders to nurture spiritual fruitfulness in the life of those in whom they've been called to care for. Now, we know the tenants are actually uh, the focus of Mark chapter 12 because, well, the religious leaders themselves get this. Did you notice that in verse 12? Uh, the text actually interprets it for us. There in verse 12, where we're told that the audience that Jesus has been speaking to, which goes back to chapter 11, verse 27, the audience is actually the religious leaders. And after they hear Jesus tell this parable, here's, their, here's how they surmise uh, what's going on. We perceive that he has told this parable against us. They are very bright. <laughs> they are very sharp. Yes, indeed, he is telling this against them. They are the tenants in this text. The rebellious ones with murderous intent towards God's leaders and have been unfaithful in, tending for God's, uh, in taking care of or tending God's people. Now, one of the points that Jesus is clearly making with this parable, and I think it's a theme and a thread that we'll pull through as we walk through it together, is that the fruitfulness of Israel can be traced, or the fruitlessness, I should say, of Israel can be traced in part to the faithlessness of Israel's leaders. The fruitlessness of Israel at the time in which Jesus comes can be traced in part to the faithlessness of Israel's leaders. We're going to see that in a couple of ways as we go through, but let me just make note of this practically speaking. We have a saying here among our elders and our, our deacons as we do training and, and shepherding of the congregation, seek to lead, nurture, disciple, and care for. We'll say, so goes the leadership, so goes the church. We'll also say, it's rare that leaders ever take followers further than those leaders are willing to go themselves. Isn't that true? And parents, this is very humbling, right? When you're raising your children and you realize you only have the resources that you have. And you want them to be more than you, better than you, to grow beyond you, which means they're going to need more than you, by the way, in the midst of this. But to realize that you're going, to be, you're, you're going to be outside of your coverage at some point. You're not going to be able to take them to places that you have never been able to go yourself or have never, never grown to. It's not unusual, right, for a corruption within a leadership to trickle its way down uh, into the organization, no matter whether that's a church or a school or a nonprofit organization or a, or a business. We see that happen. Jesus, in some sense, is looking here at the, what has been fruitlessness among the people of Israel, and he's laying some of that responsibility, and very poignantly here in Mark 12, at the feet of these faithless leaders. Now, we know that they've been faithless leaders, and we know that this has been the theme because we've been working our way systematically through the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 11, we saw Jesus go in and cleanse the temple, uh, run out the money changers, and curse the fig tree, which was a symbol for Israel. And, and we know that Jesus is in laying claim, setting up authority and lordship over his kingdom, and he is running out, as it were, the tenants, 
He is running out those who are destructive to his vineyard. That has been part of the mission that Jesus has been on in the last couple of chapters. And we've even seen the murderous intent of the religious leaders against Jesus. Now you'll notice there in verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him. Well, it was worse than that in chapter 11. In chapter 11, after he had cleansed the temple and they heard of him cleansing the temple, you know what we read? They sought to destroy him. Murderous intent. Quite clearly, they are the tenants in this text. And Mark is driving us to be able to see this, that the parallels are absolutely uncanny. Now, apart from the fact that he's drilling right into the leadership there uh, in the first century among the people of Israel at this point, Jesus is also telling the whole story in some sense spiritually of the redemptive unfolding of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Yes, that's all happening right here in these uh, few verses in Mark chapter 12. Now, we can't go into it in great length, but it's quite clear that God is the landowner in this text. He's the one who has control of the vineyard. It's clear that the, uh, the tenants are those who are the religious leaders, who are tend the, the vine, that the vine itself is, is, is Israel. Um, they should be tended for fruitfulness. What you may not recognize is the servants, the, the many servants, one after another, that he sends to collect some of the fruit, some of the produce from the investment of the vineyard, which he's leased to these tenants. These servants are clearly the prophets of old, the many prophets whom God has sent to the people of Israel. Jeremiah and Amos and Joel and Micah and, and, and the many who have come and preached God's word to the people of Israel. Now here's what's interesting. And we'll, you can make this a study. This Sunday afternoon is a great study for you to, to take one or two or three of the lives of the prophets. I'll even let you Google it, okay? I'll even let you Google it and look at one of the lives of the prophets. Take Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, for instance, and you'll recognize it as you see the unfolding of his ministry. It was 40 years of preaching the gospel faithfully and nobody listened. They rejected him. They ignored him. They ran him out on a rail, what we are seeing happen with Jesus in this text is what we have seen happen in God's people from his leaders all the way down to the most basic citizens of Israel is that they are hardened against the authority and the word of God. That has been systematically the case. But God, notice, has been remarkably patient. I would, I would suggest more patient than any landowners in here. Any landowners in here? Anybody rented to, to people like this? Um, who, won't, who won't pay and, and who you try to gently help and then they, they, don't have, they won't receive your help and then you try a little more and you send someone else and, and you care for them, you want the, the best for them. And you see, if you actually look at all of redemptive history, we're talking about hundreds, even thousands of years of God's patience, of sending servant after servant. And, but what notice the response? It escalates. The first guy gets beat up and is left into handy, but before we know it, people are dying and are sent back with no fruit. There's an escalated sense of rejection and hardness that is happening among the people of Israel and especially among their leaders. It's terrible, but it even gets worse because here we read Jesus telling his own story. There in verse 6, we're told that God has sent all of his servants, but he has one 
still left to send. The picture of the text is that he has exhausted all other resources. He has brought every resource to bear to woo and to call his people unto himself, unto submission, unto obedience, into his arms of trust and love. But he has one more now that he is going to send, and this is no mere servant. He's described, isn't he, here in verse 6 as the beloved son. Now, did you wonder why in the assurance of pardon we read John 3.16? That one and only and beloved son. Well, here's the reason. It's right here in the text. Jesus is in a sense, written himself into this parable. He's spoken himself into this, into this parable. And the landowner here still seeking to woo the tenants, the religious leaders, seeking to appeal to them to come under his, his lordship, to come under his, his benevolent generosity and to be a, a faithful, trusting follower of him. He says, they will respect my son, although there's no history to prove that that would be the case. God in His kindness and long-suffering with the people is now going to send His most precious possession. He's sending His beloved Son. And notice their response. What an opportunity this is. It's the Son. He's out of resources. He has no more servants. This is the guy who's actually going to get the vineyard when the landowner dies. And so they do the math. If he's gone... And he has no other servants. And we're the ones on the land. And we get rid of him. We'll just squat on it and keep it for ourselves. The inheritance will be ours. And that's exactly what they do. They kill. They say the worst for last. They kill the beloved son. And they throw him out of the vineyard. Uh, the picture is one here is outside of even a normal quote unquote burial where you would give particular respect to the dead. This is degradation at its worst. It's deeply disturbing. And it's Jesus' story. Do you know how prophetic this is? Do you realize that this is exactly what's going to happen in the following chapters in the Gospel of Mark? And Jesus is telling it right now before those leaders who are masterminding that very destruction. Now, now listen, if you're emotionally attuned with this, if you're still clocking with me, right, and tracking with me, and, and maybe genuinely emotionally doing so, you're hearing the, you're hearing the content, but you're, you're thinking to yourself, you're in the shoes of the landowner, and you're, you're seeing the, the injustice that's perpetrated and the victimization that's taking place and the horror of losing now his own son in the midst of it, the only appropriate response would be righteous anger. The only appropriate response is righteous anger. In fact, if we're, if we're looking at this, let's be quite honest. We're thinking to ourselves, this landowner is crazy. He should quit trusting these tenants. Why did he even send his son? What's the deal with that? Why would you send him when you've got all this track record of, of utter violence towards you and unwillingness to abide by the contract uh, that you have struck? Why would he even send his son? That's really where our hearts are, isn't it? And we're grieved, as it were, with righteous anger. We're ready for them to get what it is that's coming to them. And if that's you right now, that's actually where the parable wants you. That's exactly where it's designed to lead you. And it's the exact place that the prophet Nathan was seeking to lead King David so many centuries before. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when 
Nathan had to come to David in the midst of his sin and to tell him what? A parable. He told him a story. A story of a rich man who had many flocks, but who had stolen the one little ewe lamb of a poor man within the precincts of the kingdom. And then the rich man had a traveler come and stay with him, a visitor. And instead of going to his own flocks and sacrificing one of his own flocks, he actually took the little ewe lamb from the poor man and he killed it. And he served it uh, to his traveler, to his visitor, as he was hosting him for dinner. And David had the appropriate response. His emotional temperature went up. He was righteously angry. You probably remember that moment and even maybe even remember some of you uh, David's own words. As the Lord lives, David says, the man who has done this deserves to die. Truer words have not been spoken. But here's the problem. David was guilty of the very thing that he had condemned. And he didn't see it. He didn't realize it. It was in the moment at the end of the parable where Nathan looks to him and he says to him, You are the man. You are the rich man in this passage. You have taken another man's wife as the king of Israel. You've orchestrated his death. You are the man who's taken the ewe lamb and sacrificed it. Put it on the altar for your own delights and your own pleasures and lusts. You are that man. And listen, my friends, it's so easy, isn't it, as we look at a text of Scripture and to look at those big, bad, terrible Pharisees. Oh, they're horrible. These chief priests, these lawyers, these scribes. I can't imagine these religious folk like this. This is the reason people don't go to church, because these kind of people are in the church right here. But what's interesting is we need to be very careful about pointing our fingers, don't we? And get on our high horses and looking down and condemning their actions. Because part of what this text is actually teaching us is not simply that the Pharisees and the religious leaders in their day were the tenants who were robbing from the Lord. But it's as if Jesus is saying to us in this room today, you are the tenants. He's saying that to us today. You say to Nate, I liked you up to this moment. Um... Uh, we are weak or not. <laughs> I have not killed the beloved son of the landowner. I've not rejected the, the servants. I've, I've um, not sought to keep things from the, uh, from the Lord. Well, well, before you go down that path, let, let's look at the bigger story. You, you see, there's a story within a story here. There's the narrative of what's unfolding for the people of Israel in the first century when Mark 12 was given, but there's the narrative of the Bible of which we are actually inside of, the personal narrative that we are walking through that is the cosmic narrative of what it is that God is doing in the Scriptures. And let me tell you that narrative in the light of Mark chapter 12. I think it'll make a little more sense. Who are we this, this morning as we come to worship? Who are we? We are people who are made in the image of God. We are people who've been placed within God's vineyard. We're in His world. In fact, originally, we were in something very similar to a vineyard. It was called the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, did He give us all that we needed? Yes, He gave us all that we needed. All that we needed to be fruitful, to multiply. Oh, yes, He gave us a calling, didn't He? We had instructions. And and be fruitful and multiply. That sounds a lot like a vine dresser. A lot like the work of a gardener. 
A lot like the work of someone who's meant to produce things, to be fruitful and to multiply. He was lavish in his provision. He told us that we could eat of any tree in the garden. Only one thing was off limits. He gave us one restriction. We were not to eat of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one thing that he restricted us from. And then he went away to a far country. Sort of like the landowner in the text. Because when you look at Genesis chapter 3, we actually don't see God, as it were, immediately present within the unfolding of the narrative where the intruder comes in, right? The serpent. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And, and here's what's very interesting about the temptation. I was reflecting on it this week. How does he tempt Adam and Eve? You go, well, with fruit. Well, yes, sort of. He tempted them with a certain pattern of thinking. He tempted them to not think like a tenant, but to think like an owner. Think like you're in charge, not like you're in submission. Think not like this world is a gift to you. Think like it's yours to do whatever you want to with. Think of yourself not as a steward. Think of yourself as a possessor. You know, God says to you, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I tell you, you will be like the owner. You'll be like God. If you taste of it and you eat, and you'll, you'll know both good and evil. You see, he's really just holding out on you. Hey, he was tempting us to think as if we were God. To run our lives as if God really didn't matter. Uh, to do things the way we'd like to do them. To, to call the shots that we'd like to, to, to call. And we believed him. We called those shots. We looked at the tree and we said, hey, it was good for food. It's able to make one wise. I'm hungry. I'll partake. All the while, while God had given us an entirely different instruction. And we were unwilling to submit and we rebelled against it. And what happened? All of mankind fell. And since then, from every generation, hundreds and even thousands of times a day, each of us, in thought, word, and deed, have been in rebellion against the God of the universe and all of his commands. That's been the struggle. Coming from that moment as those who were tenants, those who were vice regents, those who were there to represent God and to walk according to his will, and we rebelled. Do you see, when you begin to see the larger story of the Scripture, you begin to realize that well, it's not just the religious leaders in the first century that are tenants. Yes, that's true. But we're tenants. And we've acted in similar ways. And I'll be honest with you. It's, I like calling them my own shots in my life. Well, until things don't go well. And then I look for somebody to blame. But, but I like calling the, my own shots. I, I really genuinely, I find within me a law at work where I don't want to submit to the authority of God. It's there. And I think, to be quite honest, if we were to, to be truthful in this hour, if we could before the Lord, we don't want people, and God's included, telling us what to do. We much prefer a kind of grandfatherly sugar daddy. You, you know, a benevolent, long-bearded Santa Claus figure in the sky who is, um, for the most part, on the sidelines until we need the keys of the car and we ask for them. Until we need him. 
Now, many of us would go, oh, that's terrible. We think this way. Well, look at your prayer life. Look, look, look at when your prayer life takes an uptick. Have you, have you noticed when that is? Right. Right. When you need something. Right. We, we have default settings in our hearts that, that move in this direction. And some of us are going, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I actually relate to God in this way. Well, let's think of it maybe along these lines. When the landowner places new demands on you or invites new challenges into your life. That's a, that's a kind way of saying trials, sufferings, difficulties. He invites new challenges into your life. How, how do you respond? You ever get, ever get angry? You ever complain? How about that business deal that was supposed to give double the profit and actually gave you double the deficit? And it came from the sovereign hand of God to humble you, to cause you to fall upon your knees in neediness for Him, and to plead for him for the provision and grace that only he can give. Did you receive it that way? Or, or did you, like Job's wife, want to curse God and die? Uh, how many of us kick against uh, the commands of Scripture? We read the Scriptures. We see what it calls to. And we close them and we say, well, isn't that sweet? I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do. You say, oh, see, I would never rob from God fruit. If he came to visit me with his servants, I'd give him fruit. Well, you're robbing from God if you're rejecting his servants in the word. You're hearing their instruction, and you know what obedience would look like, and you willfully choose the opposite direction. It's, it's robbing from God. It's taking from him what is his. He's made you. You're in his world. Everything you have is a gift. All of it. There's no rights here. We're stewards. We're tenants. We all rent. We have no mortgages. We all rent. They're all his stuff. It must be held with, a, with an open hand. He's the landowner. We must remember this. And he's drawing us into, into deep need of him, obedience to him, so that we would love him and follow him. That is what is Right. That's the way the world is actually made. Do you know that's the fruit he's come to look for? You know the fruit that he's looking for in your life this morning is not that you've made a lot of money, you've been successful, you've got some degrees on your wall, or whatever the thing may be. The fruit that he's coming to look at in your life is do you love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? That's the fruit he's coming to collect, you see. That's the fruit that he's coming to collect. I was saying actually in the early service how easy it is for, for me to lose track of this in case you think that I'm, you know, six feet above contradiction here. Um, we had one of those weeks, right? You have, you have these weeks, you know, the element goes out on the, the oven while you're trying to bake chocolate chip cookies. Um, you have some health issues that show up in your, your life and in and in your family, and, and you get home from a, you know, a lovely picnic as we did last night as a family and turn the key off on my car, and I step outside. It was a, love, it was a lovely night. The Lord's been so kind to us in July. It's not been nearly as, it's hot out there today, but, but it's, been, it's been really nice. And I turn the engine off, and I hear this, yes, flat tire, yes. And, and um, 
I was able to work it out, just, just a word, because I know you'll be worried about this. I was able to work it out, and, and I still have air in my tire, at least I did this morning. Now, I might need a ride home, but, so don't go anywhere after the service. I, I might need you. Um, I was able to work it out, but it was one of those things where I thought, you know, and, and that little thread kind of passed through my mind. Well, yeah, this is about right. Hmm. That's an interesting soul place, isn't it? You know, it, it would have been, you know, part of it's like, what a blessing to have a car by which a tire could be flat on. Isn't that a different perspective? That's not where my mind went, by the way. <laughs> Lest you think me holier than I am. Um, but in reflection, by God's grace from this passage, I was able to smile in the midst of it, and a knowing that the Lord, with the challenge that he had given, small as it is, and simple, really, in the scheme of things, is meant for my good. And he's after deep spiritual things in me, and calling me to more. You know, everything that goes on in our lives. You know, this is, this is something very important. Because in this text, he's, he's telling us that this kind of injustice, this kind of perpetration that's going on, this robbing of the Lord, this ignoring of the Lord. you know how amazing it is that we still got up this morning and we're still breathing? And we have clothes and some of us have a little money in our bank accounts. And, and, um, and we, you know all the ways we robbed God this last week? And he, look, he didn't come and beat us up and drag us away. He's so kind. He's so patient. We don't necessarily live that way, but that's the truth of the matter. He's so kind. He's so patient. You know what this text is also teaching us? Is that though he has been patient and was patient with Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years, there is a day on which the reckoning comes. Do you see that question in verse 9? What will the landlord, what will the landowner do? Now I'll tell you what he did before I'll tell you what he do. What he did was in A.D. 70 brought Titus, the future-to-be emperor of Rome, and his soldiers into Jerusalem, and he leveled the city, and he destroyed the temple to where there was not one stone left upon another. And the religious leaders who had so prized their religiosity had nothing. And they were cast into the wind, and he gave the vineyard, believe it or not, to Middle Tennessee folk who aren't Jews, who aren't a part of the covenant promises natively, who are grafted in, Paul tells us in Romans, because of God's kindness, he's broadened and welcomed us in. Now listen here, don't miss the point. If we weren't the original receivers of the promise and they were removed because of their unfaithfulness, why do we think that in our unfaithfulness, we'll always stay. That's the point of this text. There's a reckoning that's coming. AD 70 was just a glimpse into what the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be. He will come in judgment. It's just a matter of time. And as Solomon writes in Proverbs eleven twenty one, I happen to be reading it in my Bible reading this week. Be assured, Solomon writes, the wicked will not go unpunished. Now, unless you begin to say to yourself, man, God is so mean. Here's that Old Testament mean God. Now he started to talk about him again. 
It is impossible for a holy God to leave any sin or injustice unpunished. It's impossible by His nature. That to do that would be to lack holiness, to lack righteousness, would be unjust. By virtue of His very nature of being holy and just, He must bring the wicked to destruction. There must be a judgment that must happen. When Solomon writes that, that the wicked will not go unpunished, he simply knows that from the character of Almighty God. But here's what I want to tell you. The verse actually doesn't end there in Proverbs 11. I was struck by it this week. The last part of Proverbs 11:21 21 reads this way, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Now listen, that's, that's good news. Let me tell you why it's good news. It doesn't say the righteous will be delivered. That would not be good news for you and me. It says the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. The offspring. Well, well, who ultimately is the righteous? Who is this seed that's going to come forth from this righteous, righteous one. Well, notice what Jesus actually, he clues us into this. Look at verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus takes us in a, in a very interesting sort of mixed metaphor way out of the vineyard into a building site. And he says, listen, the contractors and the construction workers have been working on this major edifice and they're buzzing around all of the time and they're building this, this thing called religious life in Israel, okay? Or whatever it is, they've been building this thing. And all along, there's been this slab of stone on the margin of the job site that they rejected. And after the days where all of the Israelites have been scattered to the wind and dispersed, the master builder is going to come. And when the master builder shows up on the site, he goes and he sees that stone that's been rejected at the corner of the job site going to be thrown away. And he takes that stone and he builds the entire edifice on that one stone that had been rejected. The cornerstone who is Jesus Christ himself. What is Jesus saying here? Well, you remember early in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they said, you are crazy. It took 46 years to build this temple. And of course, he's not talking about bricks and mortar. He's talking about his own body. He will be the temple. He will be the dwelling place of his people. He is going to die and he is going to receive on the cross the penalty of the sins of all of those who will trust in him. He's going to remove what keeps them out and he's going to wrap them in his righteousness and include them as a part of his people inside of the temple of Jesus Christ, the true cornerstone. Through his blood, through his flesh, through his finished work, we will be welcomed in. Not because we were faithful tenants. If we wait till we are faithful tenants, it's never going to come. Only by trusting in the one faithful tenant. The one who came to labor within the vineyard. Who was made like us in every way yet without sin. Who was the one righteous one who stood in our place. Only by trusting in him. 
and his finished work. Are we welcomed into staying in the vineyard as his tenants? No better. As his sons and as his daughters. You see, that's what you are now. A beloved son or daughter. You're not just a tenant anymore. If you have trusted in Christ, you are a beloved son and daughter. He's welcomed you. Isn't this remarkable? He's so generous. He's built for us a vineyard. He's so patient. He puts up with all of our robbing and and abuse and, and violence. And then he's got to come and judge. But then he receives the judgment for us. So that he can teach us that he's forgiving. That he's a deliverer. That the righteous, the seed of the righteous will be what? Delivered. Now listen to that love. Do you hear it? Can you hear that love? Can you hear the immensity of that love? When his son came, who they thought was going to come to destroy or to take, he was coming to give his whole life. When they thought they were going to destroy him to get the inheritance through wicked ways, he was laying down his life to give them an inheritance. He was loving them in the midst of their hating of him. If you receive that kind of love, you know what begins to happen to your heart. It begins to melt in that love. And it begins to change you from the inside out. You begin to become a person who says, let me willingly submit to such a Savior. Let me hear his honeyed words and obey them. For his life is life indeed. His way is grace everlasting. Do you know, I hope when Jesus Christ comes and, as it were, puts you and I under his arm like yellow and pink in the story, you won't have to say, I wonder who he is. You won't have to say, I wonder who he is. And we won't have a blank stare on our face. I don't know. But that we'll be able to recognize him when he comes. And that when he comes, he will find faith on the earth. And by God's grace, it'll be in you and it'll be in me. And it'll be in the every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation of which the Holy Spirit is now at work across this globe preparing the day for when Jesus will come back and we'll be together forever with Him. Hasten that day. But until then, know this. He is patient in order that none would perish, Peter writes, but that all would come to eternal life. Father, would you please do that work right now in the souls in this room, sanctifying us and growing us. And Lord, for those who do not know you, to save us. He who has ears, let him hear. And for all of us, let us believe and in grace obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.